<laughs> test, test. My name is Diana. Hello. Mic check one, two. Hi, this is Monisa Brown. Okay. Doing a testing for our Zoom. Yep. The, the whole thing's waving, so. <laughs> Can you hear my cat in the litter box in the background? Hopefully not. Yeah. Ready. Oh, well, I guess we just kind of jump into the skit kind of first thing right away. So, yeah, with the skits, I kind of throw in a little bit of background effects. So we'll have ocean and something, maybe a boat creaking or something like that. So who wants to be Columbus? Nobody. Columbus didn't even want to be Columbus at some point. Columbus, land ho! There it is. That's India. My God, we finally found it. Take that, Ottomans, and your stupid fucking Silk Road. We are going to be so rich with gold and people to sell. Ha, I'm such a good sailor. I don't think that's India. We haven't been sailing for long enough, and I think we drifted a bit off course. Nonsense. The drift was intentional. Remember, we just learned the Earth isn't flat. It's curved. So I was just sailing with the natural curve of the Earth. You don't know anything. I know that's not India. I shall call them... Indians to really drive home the point. Leif Erikson would have brought us to the right place. What's that now? I said you can't steer the ship worth a damn. Leif Erikson would have had us there in half the time and with much less scurvy. That Scandinavian nitwit? He only wishes he could have sailed this far east. All the way to India. Columbus, you genius. You've got it this time. I will be a celebrated hero when I return home. Columbus lands in the Americas in 1492. He commits unthinkable acts of violence against every poor soul he comes across in the New World. Columbus is soon imprisoned for his brutality committed in what is now known as the Caribbean. But shortly after, he clears his name, sails on another voyage to the New World, and dies an honorable legend. Columbus's bumbling European rediscovery of the continent of America sets off a frenzy of land claims by all the Western European superpowers and America is changed forever. Hello everyone and welcome to History is a Joke, a podcast where we deep dive into different stories from history. This week I am joined by Monisa Brown and Diana Becerra Ayala, and they have not heard this story yet, so they will be asking questions along the way and helping me tell this tale to its fullest comedic effect. Today we will be discussing the first truly free place in America, Gracia Real de Santa Teresa de Mose, or Fort Mose. Any questions so far? No, that sounds like my whole name, so. <laughs> As a black person, I'm embarrassed that I don't know about this. <laughs> it's, I mean, I, I, I think that it's very, very little known in any communities. And um, part of it, it is, as we'll learn, it was very recently discovered, uh, rediscovered. And, um, you know, part of the uh, effects of colonialism is they intentionally bury any sort of, you know, mm. non-white, non-Christian history. So um, kind of a, a bunch of compounding effects buried it and, uh, you know, literally and figuratively. It's incredible, <laughs> yet also just so deeply sad. <laughs> there's a story, but I think there's tons to piece together and um, tons to still find out. So Cool. As we just learned in the previous skit, Christopher Columbus was sent by the Spanish to find a new saleable route to India to circumvent the Ottoman-controlled Silk Road. Columbus, being an idiot, sailed to the Caribbean islands and called it good. He was not, however, the first European explorer to find the American continent. Leif Erikson and his Norse sailors braved the tumultuous Atlantic Ocean 500 years before Columbus in the 10th century and started the first European settlements in Greenland, 
Canada, and Iceland. I, I'm learning a lot right now because my knowledge of Leif Erikson is only from like SpongeBob. What is that again? <laughs> yeah, they, it's like a holiday in SpongeBob. And I'm like, oh, he's a real person? Yeah, like a red beard and a Viking helmet? Yeah. Happy Leif Erikson. <laughs> I bet it was some sort of um, trying to subvert uh, Christopher Columbus Day. Oh, smart. And then Patrick came to America in 14, you know. Leif Erikson is presumed to be the first European to contact the native peoples of America. At the time of Erikson's arrival in North America by way of Greenland, the dominating native culture was that of the Thule people, a proto-Inuit group originating from Alaska and moving east over the centuries, eventually replacing the previous Dorset culture, which was a paleo-Eskimo community originating in the coast and islands of the North American Arctic. Erikson did what all the following white explorers would do, capture or attack the native population. Cut to good old Chris Columbus continuing the tradition. After the initial contact between the Columbus crew and the native tribes, the indigenous population in the Americas plummeted as much as 95% in about 150 years. That's twice as devastating as the death and destruction caused by the bubonic plague in Europe. Tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions, of indigenous Americans perished. That's... In Europe, they lost 40, maybe 50% of the just the European population, mm-hmm. um, so a much smaller area. So that was in 1349. So by 1492, when they're sailing to the New World, they're at half, still still half of what wow. they were in, in the 14th century. So you can see how devastating that would be to 95%. That was basically like an extinction. Yeah. Like very obviously still felt like today. Mm-hmm. It wants to be Spain and it wants to be Portugal. I can be Spain. They're they're doing all the islands, anything that is west of Spain and Portugal. So there's tons of islands off the coast, anything off the coast of Africa, and anything all through the Atlantic, any little island, any little thing that they find. Um, that has all been done. And then they find all this new stuff and they're going, oh my gosh, it keeps going, it keeps going. Let me tap you know, into my Spanish colonizer ancestors. I can't do a Portuguese accent. I don't know. Slide over. You're crowding me and stepping over the line. Oh, hush up. You're over the line. This is the line we drew between us, dividing Portugal and Spain. Stay on your side. Seems like your side is always moving. Seems like you've had a centuries-long secret alliance with the French. Oh, hush up now. You're over the line. All right, let's divide up these new territories we found. Only non-Christian land, of course. Of course. I'm thinking I'll take this half and you'll take all that over there? No, no, you got all the good islands last time. I know your tricks. Here's how it's gonna go. We get all this here and some of this over here and anything west of that and northeast of that and we might as well throw in a few of these islands to keep things fair. You just can't help yourself, can you? I love this new globe. In an incredible display of audacity, Spain and Portugal created and signed the Treaty of Tordesillas to settle the brewing land claim disputes over all the new-to-Europe islands and continents. The treaty divided the entire non-European, or as they called it, the non-Christian world, in half. The Portuguese getting modern-day Brazil and southeast to Africa, and the Spanish getting everything north and west of Brazil. Sanctioned by the Pope and the power of the Catholic Church, the Spanish and Portuguese declared their rights to the land, resources, and people of the Americas. With this green light, 
the Spanish set their sights on conquering the Aztec and Inca empires in Central America, and by 1521, Spain planted a flag in the ground of the former empires and declared all Central and North America as its own. It was to be called New Spain. And it never was. <laughs> and it never was. I was in college or something. Someone spoke Portuguese. I'm like, oh, I know some of these words. And then they explained the words that sound exactly the same, spelled exactly the same, don't mean anything similar to what they are in Spanish. I'm like, oh, I don't know any of these words. Interesting. Yeah, I guess just totally different dialect over the years. This is when Spain came over and, and, and they were so stinky, everybody had to burn incense, right? And they thought that it was like, oh, they're blessing us. <laughs> oh, man. You smell. Yeah. yeah. These would be the stinky Europeans. Yeah. From what I remember, it's like the the Aztecs like showered every day. They had all these incense and just flowers that made them smell nice. And then mm -hmm. the uh, colonizers came like, oh, snap. They must just get because I just don't understand how you could not know that you smell. Right. Like that. I think when you're when you're so heavily in your own shit, you don't <laughs> smell it anymore. It's too deep. <laughs> in more ways than one. There's, they're, yeah, they're too deep in it. <laughs> this is around the time of those big collars, you know, and those, you know, you know what I'm talking about? Those big, like, floofy, like, European yeah. weird collars, like, dog collar things that they invented. And those were literally to keep the stink in. Ew, really? Yeah, they would perfume them. They would put flowers there. And those big things were up like this because you didn't want any gap because it was... <laughs> <laughs> they knew on a level enough to create some garments to help with that. They knew that they were a little stanky. Some sweaty necks. <laughs> and then, you know, these people have come over on ships for however long, weeks and weeks, at least, if not months. True. Projecting a little bit. Are we hiding some fears here? No, I don't stink. Who's dang? Someone did tell me that in school once. Because it's just like as a as a little like first generation kid in school, my mom would pack me like beans, rice, all the fun stuff. So it's just like I would get the jokes. It's like, oh, you smell like beans. And I'm like, well, at least I don't smell like a whole canister of Axe body spray. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, that's terrible. I'm sorry. I'm going to go on a limb and say they were white kids. You know, a shocker. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. So in terms of New Spain and, and just that, that audacity of Spain was in Central America and basically said everything up, you know, north of this we have. They weren't there they weren't they didn't have colonies they didn't have people they just sort of looked that direction and said all of that too we're all on the west coast so we have a bunch of spanish uh you know straight of juan de fuca and san juan islands and yeah Padilla bay you know california obviously they didn't have as many colonies it was mostly the missions that were there but you know in a lot of ways same difference i think honestly that might have been like on par if not slightly worse was the whole like religious aspect of it the erasure like indigenous culture and their beliefs and all that and it was just which is like for example like i grew up catholic that's all we knew but it's like my my ancestors are like no that's not what we are <laughs> it's a lot of especially my generation is just rediscovering those indigenous roots of mm. who we were pre-colonization mm -hmm. it's hard and, and as we'll learn unfortunately a lot of names are lost because they're given Catholic baptized names and they purposefully bury anyone's original name. They still um, do that. We had to have like Christian or Catholic names or they call them now saint names. You can get a completely different name and identity and that's what mm -hmm. they call you by in, in mm -hmm. those classes. And it's just, it's so wow. surreal. We'll have you back, Diana, for the Catholic Church podcast. That one will be five parts. Oh dear. Okay, New Spain, here we go. The Spanish had the Caribbean conquered since Columbus's landing, and now they conquered Central America and Mexico, 
but there was so much more land. As early as 1500, Portuguese and Spanish sailors set off from the Spanish colonies in the Caribbean to the coasts of Florida to attack and explore. In 1513, the infamous Spanish explorer and governor of Puerto Rico, Juan Ponce de Leon, was granted permission by the Spanish crown to officially explore what lies north of Cuba. On his journey, Leon mapped the Bahamas but kept sailing until he reached mainland North America and what he called La Florida as it was springtime and the local vegetation was in bloom. And Ponce de Leon was the fountain of youth. I don't know if you guys have ever heard that myth. Yeah, that's Ponce de Leon. And I, I, I kind of looked into it a tiny bit because I was just curious as I was doing this, and they don't really know where that came from. The first recorded Ponce de Leon was searching for this fountain of youth in Florida to turn back time it was like years after his death. It came up in some sort of a fictional writing of the time, you know, 20, 30, 40 years after he had died. Maybe just some writer taking that he was a famous figure and an explorer of, you know, uh, for the Spanish and then creating this like historical fiction, I guess. Oh. Leon's first trip was brief. He mapped the Florida coastline and returned to Puerto Rico. In 1521, Leon sailed again for Florida, this time with 200 men to establish a settlement. After only a few months, the local Calusa people drove Leon and his colonists away. The Calusa inhabited the southwest tip of Florida, and by the 16th century, when Europeans were making contact, the dominant culture in the area was the Calusahatchee, a unique fishing community that created a maze of earthen mounds forming canals and waterways throughout the land. The paleo-indigenous people first arrived in the south of Florida and the Everglades around 12,000 years ago. So a little bit longer than the Europeans, you know. Just a smidge. After the European rediscovery of North America, Many a Spanish conquistador attempted to establish settlements on the coast from the Carolinas to Florida. In present-day Georgia, the first settlement in the continental United States was created by Lucas Vasquez de Ayon, called San Miguel de Gualdape. I looked up all these pronunciations this morning. I'm trying to remember. <laughs> yeah, you're doing an excellent job. The Gualdape, I believe it seems like eventually became... Guadalupe? Yes. Yeah. Gualdape is the Spanish pronunciation, but it's presumably named after the local Wale tribe is the pronunciation that I've seen historians say. Mm. And, you know, a lot of these names are either spoken or attempted to be written in a way that the two could understand. So there's a lot of genuine misunderstandings and mishearings and then a lot of in- more more intentional, you know, uh, misspellings. Ayon had 600 men to start the settlement, and he brought with him the first documented enslaved West Africans in the New World. Another first quickly transpired, the first rebellion of enslaved people in North America. Hell yeah. Ooh, interesting. If you ask Kanye West, it was a choice, so. Or Ron DeSantis and the Florida Board of Education. Did they have a leprosy back then, or was it, is it just us now? Yeah. It's some sort of a bacterial skin infection, I believe. I don't know. I was trying to read about it, and I was like, and didn't, I didn't understand. <laughs> Aeon's mission was plagued from the beginning, with bad weather, late starts, indecisiveness in choosing a settlement location, and loss of their flagship. Once Aeon's men came ashore, the colonizers suffered from hunger, illness, disease, and general lack of preparation or education in the local environment not to mention attacks from the Wale people, who reportedly had good contacts with the French explorer Jean 
Gene Ribflaw or you know what? Why don't we do to him what other people did and, and just forget his name and just call him some French explorer? Gene Rib. Johnny Ribby, <laughs> who visited Florida but did not settle. However, as the Spanish settlement quickly deteriorated, the Wale became wary of the Spanish. The relationship between the two devolved into violence and death when starving residents of San Miguel violently demanded food from a nearby Wale village. In response, the settlers were attacked. Several months into the settlement, Ayon dies and leaves in his wake a power vacuum. In the midst of the ensuing power struggle, a group of enslaved West Africans in San Miguel set fire to the house of a mutiny leader. Using the following chaos, it is presumed those enslaved escaped, possibly attempting to live with the Wale. Metal. This brings us to an important topic and part of what made Fort Mose the Fort Mose we are learning about today. Maroons, or as some of the communities called themselves at the time, children of the Almighty. Maroons are a part of the larger African diaspora in the Americas and the descendants of escaped slaves living in free communities, often mixing cultures with the local indigenous people. These free black communities existed all over the Americas, Jamaica, the Greater Caribbean, and essentially anywhere slavery was being imposed by European empires. As evidenced by the previous story, from the first boat landing in the New World with the first enslaved people, there were rebellions, escapes, and survival. These maroon communities were often leading rebellions against the colonizers, freeing other enslaved people, and fighting the Spanish slave trade in the Americas. The very first maroon communities developed in the mountains of Haiti were enslaved West Africans and the local Teano people fled the Spanish conquest of the island. Haiti became the headquarters for New Spain, or Hispaniola. The Teano originated in Venezuela and spread throughout the Caribbean, becoming one of the largest indigenous groups in the area. That is, of course, until Columba. <laughs> Whenever I hear about, like, Taino culture, it's usually Puerto Rico. Surprising to me. I'm mm -hmm. learning so much. All through Haiti, Jamaica, all through the Caribbean, yeah, and I guess originates. So they must have been seafaring people as well. A note on the etymology of the word maroon. While that is the technical term and what some descendants and how some communities still refer to themselves, it is a European given name, as essentially all the names used today are, and has some questionable origins. The English word maroon comes from the French word maron, or, you know, not moron, but maron or whatever. I can't say it, the French thing. Anyway, saying, there it is. <laughs> there it is. Meaning fugitive or wild, which comes from the Spanish word cimarron, meaning wild or unruly. The word cimarron was first used by the Spanish in the Caribbean colonies to describe the wild cattle. Later, it was used by the Spanish to refer to free black communities living in the hills around the Caribbean plantations. Sima crafted to depict the summit of mountains. And Maroon 5 got to change their name now. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yes. And I, and I wonder, I'm sure it's come up whether any of them are listening, you know, into places where it's come up. I don't know. So I'm trying to remember, I did do some reading on Maroon and it's, and then there's the color of course, which came into mm -hmm. the into the vocabulary of Europeans much later than than the French and the um, Spanish words. Some scholars think it could be possibly derived from Maroon peoples, you know, either in in the Caribbean or elsewhere. Um, but there's not a clear connection there. And then in terms of it being a word for like a castaway or someone like marooned, I think is like a verb, mm -hmm. isn't it, of some kind, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That 
does seem to be connected to the original use of the word. Huh. So if it's Maroon 5, like we are Marooned 5, then yeah. No. <laughs> Shout out another animated uh, to Spirit, the the Stallion of Cimarron, <laughs> starring Matt Damon. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry for that sound. Is this a movie? It's an animated horse movie. It's- People on TikTok talk about how hot that horse is all the time. <laughs> it's Matt Damon horse. Okay, okay. I know what you're talking about. These free black communities, of course, all had their own local names derived from the cultures and languages in West Africa, such as the aforementioned Children of the Almighty. It is worth noting that from 1700 to the 1860s, in the swamps of Virginia and North Carolina, existed a large maroon population in what was called the Great Dismal Swamp. Thousands of free black families lived in one of the largest free settlements in the United States and persevered in the undoubtedly harsh environmental conditions. To create a realistic picture of the world at the time, we need to remind ourselves about all the free people of color living and thriving in the Western world, including the New World. From the time of antiquity, free black explorers, thinkers, leaders, students have been living and traveling in Europe and the Americas. In the second century, Lucius Septimus Severus was born in present-day Libya. He rose through the Roman ranks and became the first black emperor of Rome. Okay. I think maybe the only. And, and it, you know, that just goes to show how interconnect, how global the ancient world was. You know, we think of like today with cell phones and the internet. Now it's like it was a worldwide community in a lot of ways. St. Augustine and Apelius were both black philosophers in the second and fourth centuries. Black Christian kingdoms existed throughout Northern Africa in the Middle Ages, bringing many black noblemen and merchants to medieval Europe. Free Afro-Spanish merchants and explorers were also among some of the first Europeans to set foot in the New World. In fact, the first recorded Christian marriage in North America was between a free black Spanish woman and a Spanish settler. The couple met in Spain and sailed to the New World together, marrying in 1565 in St. Augustine, Florida, near the future site of Fort Mose. Another black Spanish soldier, Juan Gerardo, is credited with harvesting the first wheat planted in Hispaniola. It is the revisionist history perpetuated by defenders of the European slave trade that has clouded the facts with ideas that free people of color did not exist in Europe and the Americas. Slavery was unfortunately common throughout all human history. Up until the transatlantic slave trade, European slavery and slavery in the world predominantly fell along religious lines as opposed to racial identities. For Europeans, any non-Christian was legally allowed to be captured and forced into slavery. This additionally extended to fellow Europeans as well, including Jewish, Irish, and Muslim peoples. However, this was arguably at the height of the Muslim-Christian worldwide power struggle, and for Europeans at the time, Muslims were their number one fear and enemy. Life was short and shitty, and Christian and Muslim religions worked towards a fulfilling afterlife as opposed to a fulfilling earthly life. Everything was about the eternal struggle over your soul, whether the devil or God would win the fight, any perceived racial differences were too much of an earthly matter to be a day-to-day issue, although certainly not a non-existent issue. The primary focus at the time was whose side are you on, God's side or the devil's? It was the destructive narrative invented for the justification of the transatlantic slave trade that really starts to pump the racist and xenophobic ideas of white supremacy into mainstream European and emerging American cultures. This idea that somehow the skinny, sickly, inbred Europeans stood supreme above all else. 
There were, of course, fierce European opponents of the slave trade, many being figures in the Catholic Church. However, the money generated from the slave trade drowned out the voices of opposition. While many Native Americans were enslaved, there was technically a Spanish law forbidding it in most cases, as well as the plummeting indigenous population meant slave labor on a large scale needed to be acquired elsewhere. Because of the Spanish and Portuguese geographical location and the lack of Ottoman strongholds, West Africa became the target. I feel like you just went in so hard on Europeans, the sickly inbred Europeans. Well, it's true. I mean, it's true. <laughs> it's true, but I was just like, yeah, get them. Get them. Kick them. Kick them. You know, as we talked about, it is it is in a lot of ways true because, you know, as, as the Native peoples identified, they were quite stinky and... They believed in this very Christian-centric world that became a white-centric world, and so you're marrying. And, and then you throw in all the royal bullshit where you're marrying yeah. in your family, and you're marrying in your class, and you're marrying in <laughs> your window is small. You're... I just imagine them showing up, and they're like, you guys don't. You don't marry your cousins? What's wrong with you? You guys don't marry your cousins? Actually, no, we don't. <laughs> you guys bathe and you don't marry your cousins? This is a new world. <laughs> not a lot of fun people came here from Europe. <laughs> and not a lot of fun people stayed. As you mentioned, the entire reason Columbus was hired by the Spanish to go west was to find a new way to India, as the Muslim Ottoman Empire had control of the Silk Road, the centuries-long established European-Asian trade route. The Ottoman Empire also held territory along the northern coast of Africa, closing in on the North African Christian kingdoms and the rest of Europe. Early in the Middle Ages, Islam was spread politely and forcibly throughout the African continent, eventually forming African Islamic empires, one of the largest being the Mali Empire, stretching from the West African coast to Timbuktu in modern-day Mali, about 1,500 miles wide. For this reason, that the Muslim empires had a centuries-long stronghold in northern and western Africa, the Portuguese and Spanish essentially raided these West African communities for their people and natural resources, never attempting to colonize Africa until the 18th and 19th centuries, and unsuccessfully so. Now back to Florida and what becomes the first haven for the survivors of the slave trade in North America. After several more failed Spanish North American settlements, the French began landing in Florida and north of attempting to claim land and start settlements for themselves. This kicked the Spanish into high gear, and Pedro Menendez de Aviles was sent to Florida to drive all non-Spanish colonists and explorers out of North America. It's a big job, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> In 1565, Aviles established St. Augustine in a bay adjacent to the abandoned Macoma village of Saloy. St. Augustine became the oldest continuously inhabited European settlement in mainland North America. It's still there today. Additionally, the Spanish Catholic Mission Nombre de Dios was established upon the founding of St. Augustine to convert the local Macoma and greater Timucua people. The Nombre de Dios mission is the oldest in mainland North America. More on St. Augustine and Nombre de Dios shortly. Almost instantly, the Spanish and French began fighting with each other over North America. The British soon joining in the fray by the dawn of the 17th century. After several failed British colonial attempts, including Sir Walter Raleigh's mysterious Roanoke colony. The first British settlement of Jamestown was founded. Do you guys know Roanoke? Yeah. I, I watch American Horror Story, so yes. Yeah, they just like disappeared, right? Well, that's what people say, but. The first British settlement of Jamestown, Virginia was founded. Jamestown famously holds the John Smith and Pocahontas legend. It is in the middle of, 
Mm-hmm. Just oof in general. Boo! <laughs> wow. It used to be one of my favorite movies as a child. And then just the glass shattering. just like, oh, oh no. Uh, <laughs> oh, because it was like the only brown princess lover. And then it's just like, oh, she was 12. Oh no. The songs are so good in that movie too. So it makes it even more criminal. <laughs> truly, yeah. truly. It is in the middle of this European land fight in America that the story of Fort Mose begins. Francisco Menendez, his Spanish name, was born in the Gambia in West Africa sometime in the early 18th century. Francisco was of Mandinka descent from the Mali Empire, and he, as many fellow Mandinka, was fluent in Arabic. Francisco was captured and sold into slavery sometime around 1709, presumably as a child or young adult, being shipped all the way to the British colony of Carolina. Shortly after his arrival to Carolina province, the Yamasee War broke out, in which the Yamasee people, along with some West Africans, battled the British colonizers. Over 70% of the colonists living in Carolina province were killed in the war, which is incredible. Also incredible just to think about how potentially close that the British colonies uh, uh, colonists were to potentially being ousted. Pretty close. They would have popped up somewhere else. <laughs> so close, but not close enough. <laughs> so we're talking Carolina. So the British had areas in Georgia and um, Virginia, w- you know, would have been north of that. So, yeah, there were there were people flooding in there. And the British were one of the worst for just pumping people in. They, they, their, their tactic was if we can just get as many bodies in here as possible, we'll prevail. And the French didn't do it to a degree. They had colonies and they had issues and, and all that kind of same, same stuff, but didn't pump the humans, the Europeans in, in the same way. Not the British. British are given a real cockroach vibe. You just can't get rid of them. Can't get rid of them. Yeah. Down to 70% and the Roanoke and all, and they just keep, they just keep popping up somewhere else. For the Spanish, Florida was not being used as a bank of resources the same way the Caribbean colonies and South and Central America was. Those colonies were full of plantations and mines. The Spanish's primary use of Florida was to act as a buffer between the British and French colonies to the north of Florida and Spain's stronghold in Central and South America. And this was St. Augustine's and later Fort Mose's reason for existing, to ward off Florida invasions. With defense in mind, the Spanish unveiled a decree stating any persons fleeing slavery in the British colonies may seek refuge in Florida and in exchange for a Catholic conversion, live free in Spanish Florida. Just your soul. All they ask is your soul. <laughs> you think people uh, crossed their fingers while they did it? <laughs> yeah, behind their back. Once baptized, folks were paid for their services to Fort Mose, whether it be military service or other labor. This is where Francisco Menendez headed. Francisco and his troop arrived in Florida, only to be captured and sold into slavery once again. Their purchaser, the governor of Spanish Florida. Jeez Louise. Ron DeSantis. <laughs> <laughs> no, but the governor of, of, of all people. And, and, and there's this blaring ru- Spanish rule from the crown and the audacity of the governor of all people. Like As governors are today, they have an incredible amount of autonomy and power. 
And, you know, uh, even to this day, they wield, you know, many militaries that they can send to do whatever. And there's this whole issue with Ron DeSantis about this militia. Yeah, if, if you're following that, he has his own fucking militia. It's wild. It's going to invade Disneyland. <laughs> and then soon after, a transfer was made to the interim co-governor, Francisco Menendez Marquez. It is with Marquez that Menendez is baptized as Catholic and receives the name Francisco Menendez. Unfortunately, his original name is not known at this time. So sad. All right, everybody here for soldier duty? I'll do the roll call. Menendez? Here. Menendez? Here. Menendez? Here. Men. All right, that's good enough. Today we'll be going over... Yes? Do you have a question, Menendez? I do. We've been here for a while now. Yes. And we got baptized and everything. Yes, you did. We were wondering when we will be officially declared free. This was supposed to be a religious sanctuary and all. Did you file a complaint? I did. Did you get a number? I did. Let me see that. Oh yeah, number 58367. Now let's see, the crown of servicing number 27836 now, so that's about 87 years from now, and they'll get to your request. We're not waiting 87 years. You think this is so easy? Fine, you be captain then. In 1726, Menendez was appointed the captain of St. Augustine's Black Militia, an active unit in the defense of the town. Menendez learned to read and write, and with the aid of a Yamasee chief, they petitioned the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, to honor the royal decree and free all those who traveled from Carolina and became baptized. The governor agreed and officially freed Menendez, his wife, their fellow Carolina survivors, and all future persons who escaped the British colonies. Under the leadership of Menendez, he and the governor established the first free black settlement outside of St. Augustine. It was called Gracia Real de Santa Teresa de Mose. Menendez was named the civil and military leader of the settlement and fort. His leadership was soon put to the test when, in 1740, a British armed force, under the command of Georgia Governor James Oglethorpe, invades Florida and attacks Fort Mose and St. <laughs> <Sorry>. Augustine. <laughs> Oglethorpe. Ooh, weedy. They made fun of him in school. Boogerthorpe. Menendez and his soldiers fight fiercely, but are forced to abandon Fort Mose to save St. Augustine. Menendez and his soldiers are commended for their valiant efforts in saving the city. However, they never receive any compensation for their sacrifice. Menendez lost his settlement, and the Spanish crown refused to answer his letters of request. Low on cash, Menendez starts work on a Spanish Corsair, which is a privateer ship. Privateers was the name for a ship operating privately and looting fellow vessels and ports, otherwise known as pirates. Arr. <laughs> well, it was more of an honest job than it is made to seem in, you know, pirate popular culture, whatever you want to call it. The, the pillaging. In a bad twist of luck, Menendez is captured by a British vessel. Menendez is recognized from his leadership at the Battle of Fort Mose and tortured by the British. He is again sold into slavery in the Bahamas. Oh my gosh! Is this the third time now? Yes. Is this his yes. third time? Third time. He's s mentally strong. Yeah. I yeah. I would have gave up. <laughs> I would have been like, okay. Yeah, and he was his his torture was like they cut him and put salt water into ah. his wounds. So like really, yeah, really ouchy. Like not not fun. You know, sailor sailor tortures. Ooh, 
Yeah, and it was all because he was clearly a distinguished leader and soldier that they spotted him (laughs) out on the sea. (laughs) It's 1741. In 1759, Menendez reemerges a free man at the newly rebuilt Fort Mose, having survived 18 years of enslavement in the Bahamas. What a reunification with his wife and four children that must have been. Because they wouldn't have known. He just like literally one day just walking up the beach. They're they're not even kids anymore. They're adults. That's a legal adult. He came home and all his kids were smoking cigarettes. (laughs) (laughs) The push and pull of the European superpowers in America pulled Florida away from the Spanish and into the hands of the British in 1763 with the Treaty of Paris ending the Seven Years' War. Menendez and his family fled Florida along with most of the Spanish settlers to Cuba, another Spanish colony. In 1763, the black population in Fort Mose and St. Augustine totaled around 3,000, most of whom were recently free black families. At its height, Fort Mose contained 22 palm-thatched houses, a church, crops for food, tall walls, and a moat surrounding the fort. The nearby tidal channel called Mose Creek provided fresh shellfish and other seafood to the people of Fort Mose, as well as the wild game in the surrounding landscape. A thriving free community, tragically and suddenly destroyed by the European power struggle over colonizing America. Menendez and his family lived out their days in Havana on a small royal subsidy. So it's sad that he couldn't, you know, for all of his efforts to the Spanish crown, he couldn't even, he couldn't get cash. He seemed to always be struggling to get paid. You know, the bureaucracy must have been so incredibly, not to like, you know, defend anything, but you're in a colony away from a massive empire that covers a huge part yeah. of To try to say, my letter of, you know, I made a joke about the your request. You know, it was uh, trying to cut through that red tape where he literally was in Florida and, and trying to, you know, say, hello, hello, like honor your deal here. Don't forget this thing that you said. I know I wouldn't have survived back there because I can barely send a letter now. It's, that's, it's so much work. You have to be so patient. He had to go like down to the docks and be like, hey, will somebody take my mail? <laughs> I can't. How long do you wait? You know, it takes how right. many weeks or months you, and you don't know that they got it or they read it and like, ah, I'm not going to reply to that. So you're like, how long until I send another one? <laughs> how many months should I wait until I bump that thread again? The British refurbished and used Fort Mose until the Spanish reclaimed Florida in 1784 and used Fort Mose as a military outpost. So it also just goes to show the bullshit struggle. They lost it for 20 years. It totally destroyed the community of Fort Mose, displaced the thousands of people that were living in the area just for a 20-year, you have it, okay, I have it back. No, you have it again. And they're just trading over other bullshit territories or money or whatever. Okay, you want Florida back? Okay, I'll give you Florida and you can have this. And I, you know, like- It's like kids trading marbles. Yes. It's just like people's lives. Frustrating because I just feel like governments are still doing the same thing now. It's just like arguing and then the people in the middle are what about us? Hello. Mm -hmm. Don't have water. I don't know if anyone's following the coup in Niger, but there's a very similar thing where all the Western powers are clutching their pearls because this is the only what they consider buffer between them and the other Islamic territories and they have germany and france and the united states have bases there because they're fighting islamic terrorism it's the same fucking same fucking stuff we've been talking about here with the portuguese and everyone trying to go another route because they're afraid of 
you know, Muslim people and interacting with them in any way. <laughs> They'll go around the world to avoid needing to like, you know. And then it makes you feel crazy because it's like, okay, I know it's the same thing. I know y'all know it's the same thing. So why do we keep doing it over and over again? Uh, the fort was occupied by fomenters of a Spanish rebellion in hopes of annexing Florida to the U.S. during the War of 1812. Fort Mose was destroyed once and for all during an attack on said fomenters. I will say, I guess as a footnote, the people that were occupied the fort called themselves the Florida Patriots, which sounds like the most disgusting name ever. <laughs> it, it wasn't clear. I didn't look into it enough to see whether they were truly Americans or whether they were local Spanish settlers or whatever trying to start a rebellion so that Florida would go to the U.S. Can we give Florida to someone else? Saying you can have them back. Just like, listen, I know it's been years. It's like the water is nice and hot. You can have it. That's a straight line from fucking the Spanish landing in Florida to the water being 100 and whatever degrees. Fort Mose was rediscovered in 1968, and a brief 20 years later, an archaeological investigation was launched. Many artifacts were recovered, and remnants of walls and buildings allowed the story of Fort Mose to be reconstructed. Today, the fort is a Florida State Park with a visitor center containing artifacts and written history. Fort Mose is considered a premier site on the Florida Black Heritage Trail and a precursor to the Underground Railroad. Oh, that's cool. You know, what became the Underground Railroad went south first to Florida, <laughs> of, all people, of all places. <laughs> So Menendez not only was the governor and and sort of, you know, operator of Fort Mose, helped get it started, but also paved the way so that future people coming to Florida trying to use this Spanish royal ruling about people being free, um, he, he made it an actual like hard fact because the Spanish clearly weren't actually honoring. That rule was 40 years old at the time of Menendez's arrival. It wasn't, it, it wasn't old, but it wasn't new. Plenty of time to like get it in place. Right. So no excuse for not honoring it. And, and it was him that turned it into an actual like functioning thing that clearly thousands and thousands of people were able to use. So yeah, I just wish that we were able to actually know his name. And it wasn't fucking Francisco Menendez. <laughs> That's what we know now. And maybe, you know, someday, someday that will be known. We're always learning more about history. And so I hope that in the future, a lot of these names are uncovered or whoever knows starts talking. <laughs> I mean, that's it. That's all I got. That's great. I hope I hope he gets a movie one day. Will Smith is. No, I'm just kidding. As long as Quentin Tarantino doesn't direct it, we're good. I truly am like, I would love to like go because you said there's like it's a site now right yes a state park state park and they have a whole thing you can visit and yeah i just i feel like that's really cool that they have at least like recognized that it's a space that should be remembered and and florida of all places so yeah right surprised they haven't tried to like tear it down yeah i think you know there's like the second wave of trying to erase black history you know like there was in the 1920s um where when all those statues went up there's a, a second wave of that and DeSantis is you know throwing himself into the forefront of that luckily it is at this time it's not that well known so i think it's luckily stayed out of that sort of <laughs> culture war yeah otherwise yes i could imagine it being thrown in as some sort of a fodder in the in the in the bologna culture war thing that's going on mm. so yeah an, an interpretive center with artifacts 
that they are preserving there and then a bunch of written histories and, um, you know, website. And I, they have some videos. Um, PBS did a little bit of uh, like an episode oh, or so on Fort Mose. You should watch that. Yeah, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. This was so educational and fun. It was really cool. That's the point. That's the goal, hopefully. So, (laughs) you know, long live SpongeBob. Truly. uh, Yes. R.I.P. Stephen Hildebrand and Menendez, I think, are the two, you know, dedications at the end of the episode will be Hildebrand and Menendez. You can reach out at historiesajokepodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram at Histories A Joke Pod. You can find us online at LavenderFingerProductions.com. This is really just sort of a reference um, for ChatGPT. I'm just sort of, you know, I'm recording this and then the AI is going to filter this and create the actual podcast. So I'm just kidding. <laughs> History is a Joke podcast is supported by listeners like you. Find us on Venmo at History is a Joke. Okay, we can go ahead and hit stop on the record.